All right, I trust you still have your Bibles open to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 will be uh, working our way all the way through chapter 9, chapters 9 and 10 uh, this morning. So I hope you didn't have any plans for later this afternoon. No. Uh, actually, for those of you who have been with us uh, for a while, you know that we've been working our way through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're almost, uh, we're almost finished. There's 12 chapters, uh, but, uh, Lord willing, we'll have, uh, this Sunday and then next Sunday and then the following Sunday and we'll, uh, we'll finish up the following Sunday, uh, with Ecclesiastes. But it has been a good journey so far. I, I believe I have, uh, I have benefited greatly from it and I hope that you have, uh, as well. As I said, we'll be in chapters 9 and 10. I do encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you as we go through it. Uh, we will be covering every verse in this, so you'll have to follow along uh, as we go, or you'll get, uh, you'll get really confused and really lost. Uh, we live in a data-driven world, don't we? It seems like every time that you, uh, every time that you look at the paper, or every time that you look at the TV, they're always talking about some kind of survey or some sort of statistics, some sort of hard data that's out there. It's because we, we, we love to see the numbers behind the things that, the, the way that we understand things. We love to have statistics on everything. So let me give you a statistic this morning. Are you ready for this? Unless you're Elijah or Enoch, if you were born, unless the rapture comes, you're going to die. Oh, wait, I thought we were going to have good news here this morning. Hey, it's just the reality. It's a one-to-one ratio. If you're born, you're going to die. That's the most basic statistic that we have in this world. Now, whether your death comes from natural causes or whether it comes from an accident or whether it comes from something even more tragic than that, everybody who lives is going to die. As I said, our passage this morning is a long one, but it deals with the main theme that runs through all of this is the most basic life theme of all, life and death, life and death. Now, earlier when Ben read chapter, uh, verses 3 through 6 of chapter 9, there's a key phrase there, and if you circle in your Bibles or you highlight in your Bibles, it's a good one to circle just to kind of keep your focus on. And that's in verse 4 when Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, when he says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Catchy phrase, huh? You don't see that in Instagram memes, do you? (laughs) It's not something you want to hang on your wall. But that's really his focus here. A living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, when when you read that, you have to realize how dogs were regarded in Solomon's day. Matter of fact, I think it's really only our generations, our recent, you know, several hundred year history that we have loved dogs as much as we do. And I love my little dog. But they didn't have a high regard for dogs in Solomon's day. As a matter of fact, dogs were scavengers. They were viewed more like rats than cute little pets. Anytime that there was a trash dump, there were mangy, disease-ridden dogs scavenging in those piles of junk. So that's how dogs were viewed. Now, on the other hand, lions. Lions were a symbol of royalty. Lions were seen as majestic. They were seen as regal. They were symbols of royalty and strength and power. 
So that puts that phrase in a whole lot different context, doesn't it? What he's saying there is he says it doesn't matter how regal and how majestic you are. When you're dead, you're dead. An old junkyard dog that's living is better than even the most regal, royal person when they're dead. And under the sun, that's how he viewed things. And throughout the rest of chapters 9 and 10, he unpacks that dark observation, his dark observations of living and dying. Now remember, those of y'all who've been with us, you remember the key phrase that runs all the way through Ecclesiastes. All of these observations that Solomon is making are under the sun. They're the best that he can do with observing things apart from the glory and the majesty of Christ. Apart from the revealed Word of God, he's doing the best that he can under the sun. And these are the observations that he comes up with. In other words, apart from Christ, these observations, this is the best that you can do with it. And he starts by making four observations about death. His first observation about death is that death is universal. Look back at chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. He says, But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice, as the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also the, here, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the, but he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Well, thank you for that good news, Solomon. That's dark and depressing, isn't it? In verse 2, he says that the same event happens to all, whether you live well or whether you live wickedly, whether you're a good person, whether you're a dirtbag, whether you're a churchgoer, whether you're the farthest thing from it. And then he repeats it again. In case we didn't get it, he repeats it again in verse 3. He says that the same thing happens to all. The same event happens to all. <clears throat> so here is Solomon at the end of his life as an old man, and he's looking back on his life, and he's making the cold observation that the living to dying ratio is one to one. That the same thing happens to everybody. Everybody is going to die. You know, I imagine the same thing was happening to Solomon that happens to all of us when we get older. One of the things that I notice is every year that goes by in my life, I see more and more of my friends, I see more and more of my family, I see more and more people that I've known die. Right? We, we see more and more familiar names and familiar faces in the obituaries. Family members pass on, neighbors pass on, co-workers pass on, old classmates pass on. 
And some of those folks, they're, they're young and healthy and it's completely unexpected when they pass away. Some of them are sick and frail and it's almost, as much as you hate to say it, it's almost a relief when you see them finally get to go to be with Jesus. Some of those people, they go in, in absolutely horrific ways. Some of those people go in tragic ways. Some of those people, they go in heroic ways. Some of them go in quiet ways, almost unnoticed. But everybody eventually goes. All will die. To live is to die. Death has no gender or ethnic distinction. Death has no age restriction. Death is no respecter of wealth. It's no respecter of status. It's no respecter of position. Death is the great equalizer. Death is universal. Solomon also observed that not only is death universal, death is final. Look at verses 7 through 10. He says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let no oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil, which you must toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol. Sheol is another word for the grave to which you are going. Might as well eat like a foodie. Might as well drink like a fancy connoisseur and hold your little finger up when when you're drinking. You might as well enjoy it. You might as well dress for success. You might as well enjoy all the best things that life has to offer. Find somebody, get married, and enjoy your life together because it's all vain. That's the best that you can do. Just do the best that you can with what you got to work with because that's the best. Under the sun, Solomon says that that's the best that you can do with this vain life that you've been giving, that you've been this meaningless life that you've been given. Because you're not going to be able to do any of that fun stuff when you die. There's none of that stuff that happens in the grave. You can't take it with you. You've heard it said that no hearse has a trailer hitch, right? You don't see U-Hauls pulling up to the cemetery. You, You can't take it with you. You're not going to be thinking about stuff. You're not going to be doing stuff. There's not things that you can accomplish while you're in the grave. No amount of wisdom that you that you gain in this life will benefit you at all when you're in the grave. Now, depending on how old you are, what generation you are, you might know this as a Roy Orbison song from the 1960s, or you might notice it, you might know it as a Morrissey song that he redid this year. But he could, it could very well have been the same kind of song that Solomon sang. Here's the word. It says, all the rainbows in the sky start to even say goodbye. You won't be seeing rainbows anymore. Setting suns before they fall echo to you. That's all. That's all. It's over. It's over. It's over. See, under, under, under the sun, all that Solomon saw was that death is final. It's the end to everything. He also saw that death is random. Look at verses 11 and 12. 
Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. What he's saying is it doesn't matter how strong or how fast or how wise or how rich or how how much anything that you are, <laughs> death's coming. Time catches up with you and you die. You can be the healthiest person in the room and die in a car crash. You can be the safest driver in the room and die of a heart attack. You can be walking down the street without a care in the world and get hit by a car and die. Let me tell you about a pastor I've known for a long time named Jack Miller. Jack Miller, um, 18 years ago, when Jack was 27 years old, he was God called him to Ripley Baptist Church, West Ripley Baptist Church in Ripley, West Virginia. So that was 18 years ago. He served faithfully in that church. And then a few years ago, God called him to pastor uh, First Baptist Church of Tyler Mountain in another part of the state. And he was faithfully serving there. Jack was also a lieutenant colonel uh, chaplain in the Air Na- in the West Virginia Air National Guard. He served faithfully in that position as well. Had several tours of duty overseas in combat zones and all that kind of stuff. Um, he also cooked some pretty amazing fudge. <laughs> that was a little side hustle that he had going on. He he cooked uh, Jack's fudge was what he called it. Well, I just found out this week that uh, last Saturday, while at home, while he was talking about his upcoming fudge sales for the Christmas season, he died. Massive heart attack. Jack Miller was 47 years old with a wife and two children. As verse 12 says, man does not know his time. The fish doesn't see the dragnet that it gets caught in. The bird doesn't see the the snare that it gets trapped in. And you and I cannot see the death trap that is set for us. Death is random. It's random. And Solomon saw that when death happens, that the dead are quickly forgotten. Look at verses 13 through 18. He says, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than the weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Solomon breaks out into story time, and it seems like uh, as, as we've moved through Ecclesiastes, it seems like every time that he gets, uh, gets to something that's a little bit too personal for him, he breaks into story time and breaks into this third-person kind of a story 
story time. He, he, he breaks into a story here and he tells the story of this great and powerful king who was outsmarted by a poor, insignificant nobody. Now, whether that's autobiographical or not, we don't know. We don't know if Solomon's talking about some sort of historical event from his kingdom. But regardless, the point is still the same, that this wise and powerful king was outsmarted by this poor, insignificant nobody. But the tragedy wasn't that the great king got whipped. The tragedy, the story isn't even about who was the hero in the story. It wasn't even about the heroics of the, of the city being saved. No, the part that sticks with Solomon is the fact that this poor, insignificant nobody that whipped the king wasn't remembered. Nobody remembered it. His wisdom and his heroics went to the grave with him. The city was saved, but nobody remembered the dude that saved it. You notice on our on our highways around here, many of our highways, they have green signs. You ever pay attention to those green signs? They'll have some stretch of highway or something that's named after somebody. You ever pay attention to that? There's a there's a bridge in Princeton. It's on 460. It's right before the the uh, I-77 interchange. And that bridge is named for, in memory of or in honor of, Justin T. Thacker. Justin Thacker died June 24, 2004, from hostile fire in Afghanistan. Anybody know that? Now, there might be somebody in here that, you know, because of family ties or because you went to school with them or whatever, you might, you might have that kind of a, a knowledge just a personal knowledge because you knew Justin or his family. But will your kids know him? Or will your grandkids, when they pass over that bridge and they see that sign, if it hasn't fallen down or rusted out, will they, when they pass over to the Justin T. Thacker Memorial Bridge, will they have any clue who that is? See, here's the reality. The dead... Even the heroic dead are quickly forgotten. See, those people that we read about in our history books, those heroes that we read about in our American history books, our country's only a little over 200 years old. What about the heroes from a thousand years ago? Anybody remember their names? See, even the heroic dead are quickly forgotten. Not only are the dead quickly forgotten, verse 18 says that anything we accomplish in life, no matter how great it is, anything we accomplish in life will eventually be destroyed by somebody else. Here's the point Solomon's making. Whether you're a regal, majestic lion or not, no matter how much of a beautiful lion you are in this life, when you're dead, you're dead. And that's the best that he could come up with under the sun. Under the sun, Solomon saw that death is universal, it's final, it's random, and nobody's going to remember you when you're gone. But remember the rest of his saying back in verse 4. The rest of his saying back in four, verse 4, he said that this nasty, old, disease-ridden 
mangy junkyard dog that's living is better than that regal majestic lion that's dead. Now, once again, you've got to remember that all these observations that he's making are under the sun. So keep it in context here. In other words, they're apart from Christ. Life apart from Christ. He gave us four observations about death, and now he's going to give us four observations about life. His first observation about life is that life is unfair. Look at chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. He starts off just kind of gross here, doesn't he? Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. I don't know how many of you are planning on getting cologne or perfume for uh, a spouse or loved one this Christmas. Make sure it doesn't have, you know, stinky dead stuff in it. (laughs) Dead flies makes the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Okay, by the way, when we read that, I mean, other than the gross flies and the perfume kind of thing, when it's very tempting this time of the year, especially with all the political stuff, it's very tempting to take verse 2 and quote that out of context. Uh, verse 2, no matter how much you want to quote that during the upcoming election cycle about the right, the wise going to the right and the, um, the fools going to the left, um, don't... Uh, It's not talking about American politics, okay? (laughs) It's funny, yes, it's true, yeah, probably, uh, but don't, don't pull that out of context and, (laughs) you know, guard your, guard your uh, Instagram memes, okay? Don't, uh, (laughs) don't, don't use that. What he's saying here is not dealing with politics. What he's saying is that a wise person will tend to be drawn in the right direction in life. And a foolish person is going to tend to drift in the wrong direction of life. It doesn't mean that it's a fixed thing, but that's kind of the natural pull for a wise person or for a knucklehead. And even when the knucklehead is put on the right path in life, he will tend to broadcast to the world that he's a knucklehead. That's what he's saying there. And then in verse 4, he gives us a little advice. He says, when your boss blows his top, it's best just to keep your mouth shut until the storm passes. But then he gets to his point in verses 5 through 7. That's all kind of prelude to his point. And in verses 5 through 7, he just says, hey, life's not fair. Life's not fair. You know those knuckleheads who don't know the right hand from the left hand and, and they don't know what way they're supposed to go? Somehow those knuckleheads end up in leadership positions over people who know better? Goofballs ride Cadillacs while smart and talented and gifted people have to ride the bus. Life's not fair. Idiots get promoted. Good, hardworking... Thank you for not saying amen. <laughs> Good, hardworking, honest people slave away living paycheck to paycheck. Kardashians get famous. Life's not fair. Life's not fair. 
This dog's life that we live is completely unfair. It's also cruel. Look at verses 8 through 11. He says, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. I don't know if you've ever had to do this. I've had to do this before, but ditch digging is hard. It's hard, especially if you have to do it with a shovel and a pick. Ditch digging is hard. What Solomon is saying here is that people who work really hard, whether it's digging ditches or whether it's quarrying rocks or whatever examples that he's using, people who work really hard and love what they do can get consumed by it. Like coal miners, right? My papa was a coal miner. And that love of being a coal miner ended up giving him emphysema and black lung and all of that. Right? They love being recognized and doing the work of being a coal miner. But that love and that passion ends up consuming them. And they end up and it's not just that industry, it's many others. In the late forties there was a guy named Merle Travis that wrote a song. It was called Dark as a Dungeon. And this is how he put it. He said, come and listen, you fellows, so young and so fine, seek not your fortune in the dark, dreary minds. It'll form as a habit and seep in your soul till the stream of your blood is as black as coal. You can love it. You can be consumed by it, but it's still going to kill you. Under the sun, the work that is your absolute passion, the work that gets in your blood can consume you. The stuff that you invest your life in, that you sacrifice your family for, that you sacrifice all of the things in your life just so that you can do that job and you work hardest for, those things will hurt you the most because life is cruel. Under the sun, life is unfair and life is cruel. It's also empty. Look at verses 10 through 15. I'm sorry, 12 through 15. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though man know, though no man knows what it is, to, what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The tool of a, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Solomon, if anybody used wise words, Solomon did. He was divinely inspired to write Scripture. He was divinely inspired to have inerrant, infallible words. He was revered for those words. People came from around the world to hear the words that he spoke. He was given these amazingly wise words, but he still lived his life in vanity. His life was still empty. His, he, his life was just as empty and as vacuous as any talking head that you might see on TV that just spouts words and has no idea what they're saying. See, it doesn't matter how many words you use. When nobody knows where you're going, 
with those words, then life's empty. If those words that you say aren't impacting your life, then life's empty. Even though your life is full of words, it's still empty. Under the sun, life's unfair, life's cruel, and life's empty. It's also out of control. Verses 16 through 20. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Though through sloth, through laziness, through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. You know, you might be in a position in life, you might have gotten to a position, to a place in your in your home or in your school or in your work where you think you have some measure of control, but when it gets right down to it, <laughs> you're not. You're not in control. And that's the point that Solomon's making here. He said no matter where you are in life, no matter what you have, he was the king for goodness sakes. I mean, he was, he was the most powerful man in all of Israel and pretty much in that part of the world. But his point is, is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished. You don't really have control. That's the point that he's making. And the examples that he uses is, you know, you're in a mess if your boss is childish. It's a lot better for you if people in charge take adulting seriously. If the powers that be are lazy, then your economic and your political roof is going to leak. It's going to fall in, no matter how much control you think you have. Verse 19 says we're in trouble because the people over us are probably just self-indulgent party people who are only in it for their their own self-interest. Now, that's cynical, but in some ways it's true, isn't it? But even if it's true, don't say it out loud. That's what verse 20 says. Don't say it out loud. Don't don't post it on your social media. Because <laughs> that, you know, that Twitter bird, <laughs> that Twitter bird will get it around the world before, right after you cl- click send, and feed all the trolls that are out there. See, there's no such thing as privacy. Even Solomon was recognizing that. How much more in today's world? There's no such thing as privacy. Your data isn't yours. You really don't have any control over it. So if Solomon recognized these things over 3,000 years ago, what in the world would he think about life today? He'd think that a dog's life is unfair, it's cruel, it's empty, and it's out of control. He would have thought the same thing about our lives today as he thought about his life in his day. But regardless of how unfair and how cruel and how empty and how out of control this life is, it's still better than death. A living dog, better than a dead lion. That's the best that he could do under the sun. What a miserable existence. Amen? I mean, I could feel the heaviness in here as we go through this. This is heavy, heavy stuff. 
Because under the sun, that's the best that we can do. That's the best that can happen. What a miserable, miserable experience. You know you're going to die because death is universal. It's final. It's random. And when you die, you're going to be forgotten anyway. But life is unfair. It's cruel. It's empty. It's out of control. Here at the end of Solomon's life, that's the best that he could do. Looking back on it all, that's the best that he could do. Under the sun, life stinks, but it's better than the alternative. But thank God that we can live in the sun instead of under the sun. Amen? Instead of vainly chasing after life and dreading this, this life after this, this, this life under the sun and dreading death under the sun, you can live in the Son of God today. In Christ, you and I are still going to have to die physically. It's just as a result of the curse. It's as a result of the sin. You and I are still going to have to die physically. But listen to how the Apostle Paul describes death for the believer in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. You might want to turn over there while we're reading this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 57. <clears throat> he says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in what? Death is swallowed up in what? In victory. Let's try that again. Is anybody awake? Death is swallowed up in victory. Just this last week at the um, at the Virginia Convention, H.B. Uh, Charles was was preaching, and you could tell that he was used to preaching to his African American congregations. And he he went on something like that, and finally he said, "Boy, I wish I was preaching to somebody out there today." <laughs> Death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, death is universal. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Death is final. No matter how many people write books about how they died and went to heaven and then came back and were able to write a book about it, no matter how many people do that, it's wrong and it's, it's a lie. When you die, you die and there's no coming back. Death is random. It can happen to anybody at any time and you don't know when your time on earth is over and you'll eventually be forgotten after you die. After, as a believer, all of those things are still true about death. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because when you die, you are going to be more fully alive than you have ever been. Amen? You're not going to be a dead lion. You're not going to be a dead lion because you're going to be standing in the presence of Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Death to a believer is just like a tiny pinprick. 
Thanks be to God that for the believer, we have ultimate victory in death through Jesus Christ our Lord. But listen, we don't have to wait till we die for victory. Amen? We don't have to wait till we die. When you're in Christ, we have victory now. He's overcome this gloom and this despair and this cynicism that we've seen all throughout this passage. He's overcome the cynicism of this unfair and this cruel and this empty and this out-of-control life that you're living. And because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done for you when He saved you, you can truly, truly live now. That passage in 1 Corinthians 15, the reason I asked you to turn over there, is because He doesn't stop with death. In verse 58, He says, Therefore, because of all that stuff that He just said, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, as a believer, you don't have to be swayed by the cruelty of this life. You can stand fast and stand immovable despite the emptiness and the cruelty of the circumstances around you. You can abound with purpose even though life might seem empty. You can have real significant purpose in Jesus. But you can only have that kind of life when you admit that you have no control. And when you yield any control that you think you have to Jesus, the one who has ultimate control. You can only have that kind of life when you, when you recognize the fact that you're a sinner and that you can't do anything about it, that you can't do anything to fix that. And you confess to the Lord that you've been trying to live like you're in control, like you're sitting on the throne of your own life and you confess to the Lord that you can't do that anymore and you yield that control to Him and invite Him to come and take control of your life. Confess your sinful heart to God and turn from that sin and turn to Jesus in faith believing that He will save you. That's how you can have that kind of life that's full of purpose in the middle of a world that is full of vanity and emptiness. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Are you able to say that this morning? If you're not, and we're going to have an invitation here in just a few minutes. And when we have that invitation, when we sing that song, if you're not able to say, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you're not able to say that during that invitation, I want you to come and talk to me. I want you to come talk to me and I can show you what the Word says about having new life in Christ. Remember that death is universal. It's final. It's random. Are you willing to stake your eternity waiting for a better time to trust Jesus than today? See, today, according to Scripture, today is the day of salvation. There's no time to wait. The appointed hour is now. So I beg you, don't wait any longer. Don't wait for a better time. After I pray and as we sing, you come.